0: We turn in God's Word now to John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5. I'll begin reading for us at verse 30 through to the end of the chapter. Listen now to the Word of God. I can do nothing on my own as I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man... form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. For the words of our Savior. We thank you for the works of our Savior, words that you gave him to speak, works that you gave him to accomplish. And we thank you for John, who has given us this record. We would see Christ today. We would learn of him and love him. We would trust in him and go forth from this place as those who trust. So bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This past week, we had our summer study institutes here at the church. It was a great week. It's the week that we take in August every summer to study Bible and theology with our Middle school and high school students. The fifth through eighth graders study the Bible together. That's my group. And the high schoolers study theology together. That's Dave's group. We meet every morning, Monday through Friday. We meet for three hours every morning. The first hour we study together. Then we take a break for some games and refreshments. And then the third hour we study some more. I can report that this year, once again, we did play... Hit Pastor Wolf with the Frisbee, let me say God bless the DeMarco family, because this year they sent their kids with this big, soft, gentle, bendy Frisbee disc thing, and I found it made Hit Pastor Wolf with the Frisbee exceedingly more enjoyable than it has been in the past. I am largely welt-free. It also helped that on Friday we played another game that I invented, called, Don't Hit Pastor Wolf with the Frisbee, but Come as Close as You Can. So it was a great week of games, but especially of studying. So in my group this year, in the Summer Bible Institute, fifth through eighth graders, it was the first year in our four-year rotation. The idea is that over the course of four years, you get a Bible overview, and then you get some Old Testament And then you get some New Testament, and then you get the rest of the New Testament, a four-year rotation. So in my group this year, Summer Bible Institute, it was year number one. It was Bible overview. It was a good week to get to know some of the basics of the Bible. Things like, what exactly is this book? that we care so much about, because grasping that will go a long way toward explaining why it is that we care so much about it, why it is that we would even devote a week to it in the first place. What exactly is this book that we call the Bible? And what's it like? And what's it for? And how do you read it? Things like that. That's the ground that we sought to cover in our group. And one of our main themes last week in our Summer Bible Institute, was to explore the unfolding storyline that unites the Bible from beginning to end. The storyline of the Scriptures. It's a plot line that makes its way from creation through fall into redemption. More specifically, redemption in Jesus Christ. And that's a point. That we hammered home last week in our Summer Bible Institute in a host of ways. The point that the Bible's plot line of salvation centers on one person, and that person is Jesus. So that, so that the whole Bible is finally about him. Not in the sense that every single verse is explicitly about the Son of God, No but in the sense that the whole book in its various parts centers on the son of god including the old testament which pretestified to him even before he came and then the new testament which testified to him afterward and still does so that was one of our main themes last week in our summer bible institute and i'm making it our theme here this morning. And there are several places in the Bible where you can go in order to explain that theme and to drive that point home. And we went to several of them last week in our study. Surely one of them is Luke 24. Remember that passage after his resurrection? Jesus scolds these two disciples who don't recognize him yet as having been raised he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24. And then later that day, later on in that same chapter, he says the same sort of thing to a gathering of his disciples. In Jerusalem, Luke 24. So that's one place you can go. And we went there in our Summer Bible Institute. But another of them is John 5. And that's where we've landed here this morning. That's another very good passage to go to. Because this claim about himself, this claim about himself as the central focus of the divine writings. Jesus didn't just make that claim to his believing disciples after his resurrection. He also made that claim when he was mixing it up with his opponents before his death and resurrection. Jesus was consistent on this point. He made no bones about it in the course of his earthly ministry, and that's why after his resurrection he could say, don't you remember I used to say this? So that after his resurrection, he wasn't saying something out of nowhere, something that was brand new. He had said this about himself all along. That the scriptures were about himself and that you just needed to have the eyes to see it when you read. So here this morning, for us, it's John 5. And and what you've got in this passage is Jesus talking about all of these different people who have borne witness to him. This, too, is something we talked about in our Bible Institute last week. These claims that Jesus makes about himself, the way he continually draws attention to himself, if any of us went around like that, people would think, who does this guy think he is? They'd get this impression that we're terribly self-absorbed. But Jesus can and ought to draw attention to himself like this and make all of these I am statements the way that he did and show that the scriptures pointed to him in the way that they do. So here in John 5, he's talking about all of these different people all along in history who have borne witness to him. The truth about him is that he's the the Son of God who came into the world from the Father in order to save the people given to him by the Father. That's the truth about Jesus. And what he's saying here in John 5 is that so many all along have borne witness to that truth. And that includes many in the past. That is to say, even the distant past from Jesus' vantage point. And it also includes witnesses in the present, that is to say, Jesus present, his own day. And that's how we're going to look at the passage here this morning. We'll look look at it in terms of past and present, that is to say, Jesus past and present. In other words, from our vantage point, let's look at it in terms of Old Testament and New Testament, because that's a handy way of thinking about how... Jesus speaks about all of these witnesses. Old Testament and New. So think of those as our two main points today, our two main headings. So let's think about the Old Testament first. Look at verses 39 and 40. Verses 39 and 40. Clearly, Jesus is addressing himself here to people who would say about themselves that they take the scriptures seriously, that they, they would say about themselves that they, they love the scriptures, they love and believe in and uphold the writings of God. They were students of the scriptures, and yet what does he say to them? Look at verses 39 and 40. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he says it plainly there. The Scriptures bear witness about me. His point is they bear witness about me, and they always have, and you people have never truly seen it. So, so the Old Testament bore witness to Jesus, the writers of the Old Testament. It's a claim that he makes about the Scriptures, the writings. But then skip down now to verse 45, because it's here that he hones in on Moses in particular. Look at verse 45. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses "...on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So this, what what he says there, 45 down through 47, this really stings. I mean, what he had said before, verses 39 and 40... That would have been tough enough for his opponents to hear. But this, 45 down through 47, this really hits home. Because these are people who don't just take the Scriptures seriously. These are people who would have considered themselves to be the guardians of the law of Moses. The the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. These are people who would have regarded themselves as the defenders of Moses in their own day against somebody like Jesus. That's how they would have surveyed the situation. Specialists in the books of Moses. And he's saying to them, you don't know Moses. And on the last day, Moses isn't going to know you. Moses isn't going to recognize you to the contrary Moses is positively going to testify against you. He's going to accuse you. You don't know Moses. And again, only Jesus can get away with saying this. You don't know Moses because you don't know me. The writings of Moses, you don't have the eyes to see me in them. Moses wrote of me. These people think they're the ones who are going to guard Moses against somebody like Jesus. And he's saying, in effect, you've got it positively backward. So so there, 45 down through 47, there he hones in on Moses in particular. And that must have hit home for them. But remember, this is a point that he's making about the whole of the Old Testament. He He highlights Moses, but this isn't just about Moses. It's not just the first five books. It's all 39 of them, Genesis to Malachi. So this is a remarkable claim that Jesus is is making about himself and about the writings that they consider divinely inspired. And Jesus was willing to make this claim, even in the hearing of those who definitely didn't want to hear it whether people loved it or hated it, whether it brought them joy or made them want to kill him. He took this stand. The Old Testament bore witness about him. Moses wrote of him, and that testimony would not, and it could not, be silenced. That testimony would continue to shine no matter how blind some were who poured over those writings. The Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. Now, in order to unpack that, so we're still thinking now about the Old Testament. In order to unpack that, in order to find some instances of that, well, it's true, it's the whole of the Old Testament, but since Jesus highlights Moses in particular, let's follow his lead, let's do the same. Let's notice some instances of this in the writings of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So, for example, there are some verses in those books, discrete verses that point forward to the one who was to come. One of them is Genesis 3.15. I mean, right after the fall. Right after the fall, you get this promise. And one of the things I love about this promise, right after the fall, is that it's spoken to the serpent. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a verse, a discreet verse that points forward to the man who's going to gain the victory. It's still cryptic at that point. Of course it is. But it's there. And it points forward to Christ. Here's another one. Here's another one of those verses. This one from the book of Numbers. This one from our Old Testament reading earlier in our service today. That prophet Balaam. Remember, he's, he's called by the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel, but he keeps blessing them instead. And it's driving Balak, king of Moab, crazy. And then finally, when Balak can't take it anymore, Balaam says, one more thing. He's got one more oracle whether the king of Moab wants to hear it or not, and he does not. Balaam's going to say it anyway, and Balaam's one more thing has to do with a distant figure who's going to rise from the ranks of Israel, and he will exercise dominion. Remember what we heard? Numbers 24, what does Balaam say? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. I mean, this is just dripping with drama from the lips of Balaam, no less. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. One from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Moses wrote that, and when Moses wrote that, he wrote it of Jesus. Over a thousand years before a birth in Bethlehem. Because when Balaam said that, he was talking about Jesus. This figure that he saw from afar was Jesus, though, of course, he didn't know his name. Nobody did. Even a prophet like Balaam was given a glimpse. Again, it's still cryptic at that point. Of course it is, but it's there. And we see now what what Balaam could only see from a distance. We see the one who would come and rain and it's Christ. So those are just a couple of them. Genesis 3:15, Numbers 24. Discrete verses that we look at now and see and see them pointing forward to Christ. And it's not just that we see that now, but because of the claim that Jesus makes himself, he's saying that though it was cryptic, the people of God could see already as they read verses like them. So first of all, there were, there were verses like those. Second of all, there's the sacrificial system itself that's prescribed in the books of Moses. Think about the law that God gave to his people through Moses, including those rules and regulations about sacrifices, bloody animal sacrifices that they were supposed to offer again and again, including the way Aaron, the high priest, was supposed to be dressed. Because that was part of the sacrificial system as well. This is what God said to Moses. This is Exodus. So Moses wrote this. Exodus 28. God said to Moses, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then a few verses later in that same chapter Exodus 28 God says the same sort of thing about the breastpiece of judgment that Aaron as high priest is supposed to wear on his chest. He says Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. That's all Exodus 28. Moses wrote those things. Wrote down what he'd been told by God, and when Moses wrote those things, Moses wrote of Jesus. When Moses wrote about the shoulder pieces and the breast piece that Aaron was to wear, he was pointing forward to the day when the final priest would come. And that final priest would bear on his shoulders and on his heart the very names of the sinners that he'd come to save, including mine, including yours, Christian. Jesus bore your name too, bore our names when he died, and he bears them now in resurrection glory in the very presence of God. So that's why I say... The, the very sacrificial system that you find in the books of Moses was about Christ. Set the stage for Christ. Pointed forward to Christ. So we've noticed some discrete verses that pointed forward to this figure. We've noticed the sacrificial system in the books of Moses. One more. There's the storyline that unfolds in the books of Moses. A storyline that's eventually going to be lived out by Jesus in his life and ministry, in his death and resurrection. The storyline that unfolds as you read those opening books of the Bible. And here we go to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Here's a passage that recounts this dramatic episode of God revealing himself to Abram, now to be called Abraham. And these stunning promises that he makes him. This man who thought he would die childless, without an heir from his own body. Genesis 15. I've mentioned before... um, The storyline that unfolds in the books of Moses and that's captured here in Genesis 15, a helpful way to think about it is the subtitle of The Hobbit. There and back again. There and back again. Genesis 15, we read this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. In the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's Genesis 15. Moses wrote that, and when Moses wrote that, he wrote it of Jesus. Jesus is practically spilling out of that passage. There's so much of Christ in it. Because the storyline is this. Abraham, your descendants are going to go down into a land of affliction. But I'm not going to leave them there because it's going to be there and back again. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back from that land of affliction into a land of promise, and not only that, but I'm going to bring them back more glorious than they were when they went down. I'm going to bring them back wealthy, numerous, as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's the storyline of the books of Moses. And there in Genesis 15, there's the storyline told in advance. It's like the trailer, except it's a trailer that gives away the end. But here's the point. That storyline, that's the story of death and resurrection. Resurrection. Think of that whole storyline with Jesus in view. The beloved of God goes down into affliction, and death goes down into Egypt, which becomes for them a deathly land. But death could not hold them out of Egypt, I called my son. And in a stroke of judgment against the very powers of death, the beloved of God is raised, raised to life raised to a greater glory than they'd ever known before. You see, that's death and resurrection in the history of Israel. And when Moses wrote that, he wrote of Jesus, the one who would come and live out that storyline in his own life and death and resurrection. So you've got these verses that we noticed you've got the sacrificial system you've got the very story of Israel that's to be lived out by Jesus in the fullness of time. That's the Old Testament. And even that, of course, is just a sampler. Clock says 953. We could keep going in the Old Testament, but boy, would we keep going. But that gives you some sense of what Jesus meant when he said... The scriptures bear witness of me. Moses wrote of me. So there we've camped out in the Old Testament. The first of our two main headings today. But now let's keep going to the New Testament. The second of our two main headings. Perhaps it goes without saying. But I'll say it anyway, the Old Testament was never meant to be the final word. It was always meant to be a pre-testifying word. The expectation was that someday all of the pre-testifying would give way to fulfillment testifying. Someday all of the pointing forward would give way gloriously to pointing at the one who'd come. And Jesus came. And so we have that confirming testimony in our New Testament. That's what the New Testament is. And in Jesus' own day, there were already witnesses to the effect that it was coming true. And Jesus is talking about that here in this passage here in John 5. He wants them to understand not only the writings that they've made their hope and foundation. He wants them to understand their own times including the fact that he's standing right in front of them in their own time. All of these witnesses in their own day. One of those witnesses was John the Baptist. We can notice him, first of all. And Jesus says that here. Look at verse 33. So we're back in John 5 now, thinking about these witnesses in Jesus' own day. John the Baptist We notice first, verse 33, he says, You sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. You sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. Because remember, John's the one back in chapter 1 who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist was one of them. Jesus was a second. Jesus himself bore witness concerning himself. Now it's true, he says here, I'm not the only one who bears witness about me. John does too, but that implies that Jesus is one of the witnesses. And of course there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing that Jesus was not silent about his person and work. So John was one of the witnesses. Jesus was one of the witnesses. Here's a third. Jesus' Father in heaven bore witness as well. Look at verse 37. He says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Father bore witness. And that covers, for example, the Father's voice speaking at Jesus' baptism. That voice from heaven. It to some sounded like thunder. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. See, the Father bore witness. That covers as well the miracles that Jesus is able to perform. Look here at verse 36. He says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You see, it's the Father's witness to the Son. So John bore witness. Jesus bore witness. The Father did too from heaven. The point in all of this is that in Jesus it came true. And people weren't left having to guess. To be sure, there was an unfolding character to the revelation that Jesus made of himself in the course of his earthly ministry culminating in his his death and resurrection. There was a, a kind of building as things went on. But make no mistake, in the course of his earthly ministry, he was bearing witness concerning himself. So did John. So did the Father. So there was a testimony that came before him, That of John, there was the testimony that came from him, Jesus' very words, there was the testimony that came down upon him, the testimony of the Father. And for that matter, we can keep going. There was a testimony that came after him, and that's the witness of the apostles. It's the writings of the apostles and their co-workers that make up our New Testament, including, we have to say, the book of John, which is why we can turn in our Bibles to this passage today and find this witness. All of these witnesses. It's like when somebody wins an award, maybe a musician garners a lifetime achievement award. And one by one, all of these different people get up to the microphone to, play, to pay tribute. At first, it's, it's the old timer who was an influence on him, who came before. And then it's a member of his own family. And then it's his authorized biographer. And then finally, the award winner himself is brought up to the mic to say a few words, to reflect upon his own life and what it's been like and what it means to him. All of these different witnesses from all of these different vantage points. So it was with Jesus, testimony before him and from him and down upon him and after him. There were so many who said so. So you see, brothers and sisters, it's both Old Testament and new. The whole Bible centers on this one man, this one glorious, gracious God-man. And thank God that we've been given the eyes to see it. That's the point today. That's the lesson. That's the truth. This whole book centers on this one central, glorious Redeemer. And his name is Jesus. Now, how does that truth Touchdown in our lives? What difference does this make? Should it make? Well, let me say a couple things here. First of all, brothers and sisters, we ought to be profoundly grateful for this. We ought to be grateful because we've got the whole Bible in our hands, which I know sounds like a song. We've got the whole Bible in our hands, Old Testament as well as New pre-testimony as well as fulfillment testimony, pointing forward to Christ as well as pointing at Christ. We might say pointing up to Christ now that he reigns from heaven. We've got the whole Bible in our hands. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 13, he said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's Matthew 13. Even at that point, as this revelation of himself is still unfolding and shadowy in some ways, even at that point he can say, you're blessed. You're privileged because you get to see with your eyes and hear with your ears what the prophets of old would have loved to see and hear. Well, if the earthly disciples of Jesus were blessed like that, in Matthew 13, at that point, friends, how much more blessed are we How much more privileged are we to stand where we stand, to have in hand what we have in hand, which is the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this fulsome testimony before him and after him, now pointing up to him, whom we see with the eyes of faith. Balaam said, I I see him, but not now. We say, we see him now. And we've got this whole glorious book from beginning to end that shows him to us. So, no question, it is exciting as we go back and read the Old Testament and we see the clarity and the suspense building as you read the Old Testament. But better to live now than then. Better to live now when the suspense has been resolved and the mystery has been revealed. We ought to be grateful. So that's first, uh, an encouragement to gratitude. And then, this second, we, we want to we build on this. We want to nurture this in our own experience. We want to grow in our own capacity to see Christ in the Scriptures from beginning to end. We want to grow in this way. We're grateful. That we've been given this book, which testifies to him from beginning to end. That was our first point. Well, now our second point is, out of that gratitude and a sense of the great gift we've been given, we want to make the most of it. We want to have our eyes open to see Christ in the Bible, all over the Bible. It's sad to say, but it is true. There are a lot of people in the world today who have a certain respect for the Bible. They have a certain interest in the Bible. They might be well-versed in the Bible. I mean literally well-versed. They know chapters and verses. They might have bookshelves in their homes that are full of Bibles and books about the Bible. They might claim to be believers in the Bible, and yet they simply do not believe in the Jesus who's revealed there. And therefore, as Jesus says, they do not have life. Because they're missing the one who could say, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And this is all about me. What Jesus found to be the case In his opponents in John 5, that has not changed. It's still the case that there are a lot of people in the world who think that they're on the side of the Bible and yet who don't have the eyes to see the one person that the Bible's all about. And that person is Jesus. Maybe for some it's just traditional, right? Mom and dad believed, so I'll maintain a certain respect for this book out of respect for them. But they don't see Christ in it. Or maybe it's moral, right? Society's rotting. And it's the Bible and the Bible alone that will keep it from rotting more. But Jesus doesn't have anything to do with it. Or maybe it's just political. It's us against them, it's left against right. And we want God to be with us on the left or on the right, but they don't see Christ in it. Not the Christ who really is. They just want verses they can tweet because it polls well or maybe it's merely academic scholars studying the Bible, but they don't actually believe in the Jesus of the Bible. The point is you can have the whole Bible in your hands, on your shelves, and miss Christ. Imagine the students in a literature class. They're all sitting around discussing a particular book that was assigned to them. And without them realizing it, the author of the book slips in the back takes a seat in a corner where nobody notices him. And he's sitting there the whole time listening to them. As they're all sitting around discussing his book, they're talking about what his book is really all about, what the point of it is, what the main message of it is. Well, the title of the book practically screams what his message is in the book. And the summary on the dust jacket does too. And the blurbs on the back do too. And not only that, but the author went around and did all of these interviews, making it painfully clear what the message of his book was. And after about 20 minutes of this discussion, he can hardly take it anymore, because there's not a one of those students who gets it. They're all propounding these wild and baseless and and ill-informed theories about what the book is all about, and clearly they don't have a clue, even though it is staring them in the face the whole time. It's possible to spend a lot of time and energy wrangling over the meaning of a book in a way that misses it by a country mile even though it's painfully plain what the message of it is, and the Bible is no exception to that sad rule. But thank God it doesn't have to be that way. We do not have to lapse into that. This ought to shape the way we read about the Bible, and it can. This isn't a lost cause. We actually have been given eyes to see Christ in the Scriptures, and we can grow in this very way. It's as if Jesus himself, reigning from heaven, has placed this book in your hands and he says to you, as he gives it to you, it's all about me. Let me help you now by my spirit to see it. And he does. Wherever you roam in the Bible, whether it's a sermon you've heard or a passage that you've read in your own daily reading, your eyes are always open for how a passage is telling you about Christ, for how it's contributing in some way. To the revelation of who he is and what he's done. Whether it's the Old Testament. Discreet verses and, 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 and sacrifices and storylines. Or the New Testament which shows Christ to you plainly. And the life that you're called to live in him. And even that life to which you're called. Speaks volumes about who he is and what he's like. It's ought to shape the way we think about the Bible and read it and interact with it again and Again. You can lapse into thinking about the Bible as if it were just a handbook for wise living or a source for ancient history or a manual for running the church or a guide to understanding our world or a source of encouragements to get you through the day. And there's some truth in all of those. But first and foremost, the Bible is a revelation of God's mercy in Christ. It's about Him, who He is, what He's done, what we have in Him. So let this be a reminder for us we want to be those who value the Bible above all because we love the Christ who's revealed there, not chiefly for tradition or morality or politics or scholarship, not primarily for life skills or history lessons or a view of the world or a shot in the arm, but because we love Christ. And we want to see him everywhere he is to be seen. And when we see him and we, when we find him... All of these other things shall be added unto you. Open your eyes and you will see him. And blessed will be your eyes. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do rejoice in you this day. As our Redeemer, and we thank you for this big, beautiful, glorious, challenging book that you've given us, which testifies to you from beginning to end, pointing forward to you, and then pointing at you and even up to you in glory. Thank you that you've given us eyes to see. Blessed are our eyes that see and our ears that hear. Grant us to grow in just this way. And we pray these things for your glory and for our good. Amen.